This is Culture Hollywood for Smart People for Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. I am Nico and I am your host. And we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them as we always do on this very program. Happy Hump Day! You shitheads! And by that, I don't mean that your heads are full of shit. I, I mean that you are fans of the Canadian television series Shit's Creek. Uh, much like the uh, Television Academy at the Emmys, huh? Man, how full of shit were this year's Emmy Awards? <laughs> I apologize. I apologize for the hacky dad humor. So Shit's Creek, huh? Clean sweep, seven for seven on Emmy night. All seven categories, best comedy series, directing in a comedy, writing in a comedy, and then actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress. Seven for seven goes Shit's Creek. First time that's ever happened during the major broadcast. Nine total Emmys, if you combine the Creative Arts Emmys and the awards given out on Sunday. Nine total for Shit's Creek. That's the most ever awarded to a comedy series. Um, and Schitt's Creek joins Watchmen and Succession as the three shows to win major awards Sunday night. The Emmys. Let's talk about them. Uh, holy shit with a C. Okay, I don't watch Schitt's Creek. I don't watch it. I've never seen an episode. I hear people like it. I love Eugene Levy. I love Catherine O'Hara. Never given it a shot. And it's not because I'm not interested. It's just because I don't have time. Or maybe because I'm not interested. I don't know. Maybe I'm more interested in the New Orleans Saints and the Las Vegas Raiders on Monday Night Football. Just a thought. Okay? Maybe I'm more interested in Game 4 of the Denver Nuggets versus the Los Angeles Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, I said it. Okay, I'm not that interested in Shit's Creek. I'm sure it's a delightful show. Um, but seven for seven though, is it mash? Is it cheers? Is it Seinfeld? Is it? I love Lucy. The show is seven for seven. All right. Look, this is a problem in every award show in the business. This goes for the Oscars. This goes for the Grammys. This goes for the Tonys. Hell, this is a problem in American democracy. Down ballot voting. It's a problem, and it gets worse every year. As more shows fill the airwaves, the worse this problem of down-ballot voting becomes. And you would think it's the complete opposite. It's totally counterintuitive, but I've talked about this before, and I'll say it again. You would think the more shows available for audiences to watch, the more diverse the Emmy nominees would be. You would think more shows equal more nominations for different shows. When in fact, it's the complete opposite. The more shows there are available to the Academy, the more overwhelmed the Academy becomes. The more overcrowded the field is, the more muddy the waters are. When you have 50 to 60 to 70 viable shows on cable, Emmy voters, audiences, critics don't know what the hell to watch. And so they glom on to the quote-unquote consensus shows. Oh, I saw people tweeting about Succession. Or I saw a brilliant think piece about Watchmen. Or I saw that Schitt's Creek was in the top 10 on Netflix. The more candidates in the field, the easier consensus is built. You wouldn't think it's that way, but it is indeed that way. Take a look at the United States electorate. If you've ever voted third party in your life, Green Party, Libertarian Party, Reform Party, whatever, there's a reason why people get on your ass. Because none of those parties have ever been viable in the Electoral College. All they do are siphon votes away from the big two. That's what happened at the Emmys this year. Watchmen took home 11 Emmys. Schitt's Creek, 9 Emmys. Succession, 7 Emmys. That didn't used to happen. Sure, Frazier did very well in the 90s at the Emmys. The Sopranos did very well in the early 2000s. Clean sweeps were not a thing. There's a reason why Schitt's Creek was the first show to ever do it. Seven for seven on Emmy night. 
because there are too many options. And so some critics are watching Shit's Creek. Some are watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. Some are watching Blackish. Some are watching whatever random Netflix sitcom debuts on Friday and is out of the public consciousness by Monday. There are too many options. So all it takes is one show to capture the attention of critics, to capture the attention of Emmy voters, and it goes relatively unchallenged. Seven for seven. There were no other contenders in the comedy categories. Now, I made some money off of this whole charade. I had Annie Murphy to win Best Supporting Actress in a comedy because I thought that the Shit's Creek wave was coming. What I did not know is that I had just bet all seven of the comedy awards. I would have made uh, uh, quite a little profit for myself on Emmy night. But Annie Murphy, eight to one, was my bet of the evening. I also got Regina King for Best Lead Actress in a Limited Series. She, of course, won for Watchmen. Uh, So I saw this coming. I anticipated this wave. I was correct. Most of my predictions were correct. Um, there were a few upsets, Zendaya, a big upset, um, the chick from Ozark winning best lead or what is it? Best supporting actress in a drama. That was, uh, a bit of an upset, but I don't know. In general, I was not particularly surprised because I see the direction that award shows are going. And that is, there's just too much content. There's just too much available. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing. It's a very good thing that my mother can find the perfect show to watch on a Tuesday evening that my father has never heard of and vice versa. It's a great thing. Everyone has their own particular niche, their own particular taste, their own particular interests catered to on any given streaming service. But the idea that these award shows are the end all be all that they have the final say, it's just going away. Not to say that award shows ever mattered, that they ever had final say, because believe me, they did not. (laughs) But now they're becoming even more exposed. Their lack of knowledge, their lack of expertise, their lack of just consumption is becoming exposed. The fact that The Mandalorian was nominated in Best best Drama and Ray Seahorn did not even earn a nomination in Best Supporting Actress for Better Call, Call Saul... Um, I, I mean, it's, it's just absurd. And it just shows that Emmy voters are not watching these shows. Or maybe they're just watching five of these shows. And those are the five shows they're going to cast a vote on. All right? They're watching Shit's Creek. They're watching Watchmen. They're watching Succession. Perhaps they're even watching Ozark. But like 70% of Emmy voters probably didn't watch an episode of Insecure. And that's just the truth. They didn't watch Dead to Me. They didn't watch uh, what we do in the shadows. They've seen Curb. They've seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. They've seen Schitt's Creek. And that's who they voted for. And that's who took home the gold. It's fine. It's okay, I guess. I'm sure it's a delightful show. I'm sure Schitt's Creek is wonderful. I am certainly not one to talk. (laughs) Because I haven't seen it. And I felt a little left out on Emmy night uh, in that respect. I should probably get to binging. Um, but yeah, down ballot voting. It's it's a problem that continues to get worse. Again, Schitt's Creek broke that record nine awards for a comedy series. Mrs. Maisel held it just two years earlier. Mrs. Maisel took home eight in 2018, broke the record two years later. For some reason, the more shows there are, the less diverse the, nom- the nominees become, and therefore the, mo- the less diverse the winners are. And I'm not talking about racial demographics, uh, sex, uh, sexual orientation, not talking about any of that. I'm just saying in terms of the shows that are taking home the gold, that list gets smaller. Same for the Oscars. The more movies that come out every year, the less movies that are awarded on Oscar night. It's not a coincidence. It's too much content. At least too much content for these shows. Uh, again, not a ton of surprises. Zendaya was a pleasant surprise. Uh, she was a long shot in Vegas. Good thing I did not bet that category. Uh, happy to see Succession win Best Drama. Uh, although I am less happy now than I anticipated I would be a year ago. You know, I think Succession has just, again, become that consensus show. That Sunday night... HBO at nine o'clock 
show that, you know, Sopranos once occupied, that Game of Thrones once occupied, that succession now. And look, I don't mean to be a hipster, but I kind of like succession more before it was cool. (laughs) It's kind of funny. One of the stories here uh, is that Netflix broke the record for most nominations for any given network, 160 nominations at the Emmys, only 21 wins total. That's still a really good number. And it's still 11 more wins than the next guy. Pop TV took home 10, all of them for Schitt's Creek. Uh, But HBO had 30. HBO was still the big winner uh, on Emmy weekend. And, uh, you know, it's just, again, an example of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Netflix is still not quite there yet. Like HBO still has that television supremacy. It still holds the belt. Um, And it's going to be hard to dethrone it. I think Netflix passed it out. I think last year I could be wrong about that. Um, but HBO, again, is just asserting its dominance. We still have the water cooler show. You know, you thought when Game of Thrones was over that things would change. It hasn't changed. Like Succession, although it didn't didn't get the ratings that Game of Thrones had, it still has the zeitgeist on its side in the grand tradition of HBO dramas. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Succession is just the front runner now. And <laughs> season one... When it only took home like one or two Emmys and I was the only person watching it. I don't know. I was just rooting for it a lot harder. Last night, I'm like, ah, let's just give it to Better Call Saul. That's the thing. As much as I love Succession and I adore that show, I think it's the second best show on television. And I think season two was a remarkable, actually, progression from season one. I think it actually took a step up. Better Call Saul is still the best show on TV. Just say it. Just say it. It's hard to like be happy with the result of the Emmys. And I love Jeremy Strong and I love Brian Cox and I love the directing and the writing that goes into succession. Oh, like Vince Gilligan can't take home an Emmy. Come on, my guys. Come on. Anyway, maybe next year, maybe next year. I mean, look, it took this long for Schitt's Creek to get a single Emmy. And this year it took home nine of them. You know, and it was on the air for six seasons. That's the thing that's a little suspect, right? It feels like this Emmy for Schitt's Creek was for the entirety of its run and not just season six. And that, I think, bothers me a little bit. I'm happy to see a show like that awarded. I'm glad that they didn't give it to just, you know, another Veep, another Modern Family, another show like that that has been perennially awarded uh, at these shows. It's nice to see some new blood. But it just feels a little suspect. You've had all of these years to award Shit's Creek. Now it finally hit Netflix, took off um, in sort of a zeitgeisty way, and now it sweeps? Again, I'm sure Annie Murphy is a lovely young lady, but come on. Was she that good? Was she Julian Louis-Dreyfus in Seinfeld? I mean, bro, this ain't Lucille Ball here. Whatever. Watchmen. Also, another zeitgeisty show. I I think I talked about that on the podcast. Couldn't get through two seasons or two episodes of Watchmen. I heard it's remarkable. I'm going to do it eventually. Maybe this weekend I'll do a little binge watch of Watchmen. Uh, I I saw that first episode and I'm like, there are squids raining from the sky. I can't do this. I just can't do it. I can't spend four hours a week searching on wikipedia for who's the blue guy in watchman can't i can't go on reddit boards it's not how i watch tv i watch the episode and i'm done with it i'm not a theorizer i don't care about mythology i don't care about comic books i never have and nothing makes me angrier than when a bunch of nerds on twitter try to explain to me you know the different versions of batman's origin story so I watched that first episode of Watchmen and I'm like, there's just too much mystery box shit here. Uh, it, it's it's <laughs> it's too Lindelof even for me. And good for Damon Lindelof. I, I do think like the dude is a talented TV writer. He annoys me. He bothers me. I've never really understood his his whole vibe or his aesthetic. But yeah, okay. He finally took one home. Redemption for Lindelof. And as far as I've heard, it is a well-deserved win for Watchmen. Great. 
Yeah. Here's here's the thing. I just felt very out of all of the proceedings in a way that I had never felt that out of it before. You know what I mean? In the past, I used to watch every single one of these shows. When Breaking Bad got snubbed every single year, I was there watching every episode of Breaking Bad. When 24 pulled off a surprise win for its sixth season, I think that was all the way back in 2008. Like, I was there for it, and I was like, hell yeah! 24! This was indeed the best season the show had ever done. Uh, And when Game of Thrones won the best drama award year after year, undeservingly, I was there for all the complaining as well. Yeah, now I just feel like there is less consensus and therefore it is easier to develop consensus in these award shows. Does that make any sense? Could I be possibly more obtuse about this? (laughs) You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I think you know what I'm saying. Whatever. I thought it was a fine Emmys overall. I don't know about you all. I thought it was good. Obviously, we're missing out on just that like live component that anything can happen component where uh, a a celebrity in the crowd like makes a funny face and it becomes a meme. You miss out on that at a socially distanced award show. Um, But I I guess under the circumstances, it was fairly well produced It moved along. There was a lot of politics, whatever. It's an award show. They all are like that. (laughs) Kimmel was okay. I, I thought like the Jennifer Aniston fire extinguisher thing was funny. I chuckled. I thought it was I thought it was delightful. I thought some of the presenters were a little um what's the word? Overwhelming? Yeah, I think so. Just a little ham fisted with some of their commentary. But whatever. It was good. David Letterman was fun. I enjoyed that bit of him in Indiana. Um and you know, it's not until you really see a shot of David Letterman in Indiana that you think to yourself, what the hell is David Letterman doing in Indiana? Uh, but yeah, I, look, I, I don't want to see many more of these shows anytime soon. I don't want to see like the socially distanced COVID era award shows come Oscar time. Now that may very well be the case. The Oscars are currently slated for, I believe April, uh, nominations can, uh, can uh, go on all the way until I think late February. So yeah, who knows what life is going to look like then. And Jimmy Kimmel may very well be in one of those like uh, best buy command centers <laughs> in, in, uh, in April uh, giving Aaron Sorkin an Oscar. And I don't know. I think that'll be very disappointing. Obviously these things uh, are a bit indulgent. They are a bit overbearing they tend to run too long. They tend to have too many montages. They tend to have too much bloviating. This is all true. But they only happen three to four times a year, and it's only idiots like me watching them. So give me the red carpet shows. Give me the train wrecks. Give me the chaos. Give me the F-bombs. Give me John Travolta mispronouncing Adina Menzel's name. You lose that when Jimmy Kimmel's alone at a Best Buy. But... That is the world now, and uh, I hope that we're out of this nightmare sometime soon. I hope and I pray. All right. This is Cultured. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, judging art subjectively, (laughs) you thought the Emmys were bad at it. Wait till we talk about Rolling Stone magazine. It's Cultured. Stick around. All right. Uh, Yesterday, we were hit with a bit of a surprise by our good friends at Rolling Stone magazine, the 500 greatest albums of all time. This was a list Rolling Stone put out in 2003, updated in 2012. Well, this year, they decided to start from scratch. 300 artists, producers, critics, and music industry figures got together and comprised a new list of the 500 greatest albums of all time to much fanfare and controversy. And this is just the shit I live for. You know, what is it about these lists? What is it about list making? What is it about award shows? What is it about arbitrarily quantifying art and putting it in order from best to worst? Why are us nerds so obsessed with this? Because again, pop culture aficionados are supposed to be like the sophisticated 
fanboys. We're supposed to appreciate all art as equal. It's all in the eyes of the beholder, right? This isn't the world of sports. This isn't the world of politics. This is not about red versus blue. This is not about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. Prince, Elvis, the Beatles, they can all coexist, man. Why are we quantifying? Why are we ranking? Why are we judging? Why are we putting them under the same microscope? Why are we subjecting them to arbitrary criteria? I don't know. I have no fucking idea. All I know is I spend all day on Letterboxd creating random lists and reading lists that other movie nerds have created just to get mad at them. You know what I mean? (laughs) This is all I do. This is all I do. I can't appreciate these things in a bubble. I'm always putting them in context. I'm always arguing and debating. And uh, again, I, I don't know why. I like to believe that I'm a pretty open-minded thinker. I like to believe that, you know, I can appreciate different genres and different tastes and different sensibilities. And I can respect certain works of art, even if I don't, you know, get it. But here we are, and uh, I have problems with this list. But of course I have problems with this list. And I think that's my theory when it comes to ranking and quantifying and developing consensus. The only reason these institutions exist are for debate and conversation. It's just so we can get mad at them. It's just so we can butt up against them. The Oscars only exist so we can get mad about the Oscars. The Emmys only exist so we can get mad about the Emmys. Rolling Stone's magazine, Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 list only exists so we can debate what the actual list should look like. And of course we're going to debate it because it's art. Because you can't put a number to it. You can't put a statistic to it. In baseball, it's easy. Look at ERA. Look at slugging percentage. Look at wins above replacement. In sports, statistics tell the story. In art, statistics don't tell the story. Opinion tells the story. Expertise tells the story. Sensibilities tell the story. Cultural influence tells the story. And depending on who you're asking, you're going to get a radically different answer because of not only personal taste, but also perspective. If you're someone creating the art, you might have a different opinion than someone that just consumes the art or writes about the art. Or if you're on the production side of things, you may have a different opinion than someone on the financial side of things. So you have many different perspectives, many different personal tastes, many different personal relationships clashing all at once. And you're trying to find consensus. Maybe you like a particular album because you listened to it in high school. Maybe you like a particular movie because you saw it on your first date with your wife. What are we to make of this? How are we supposed to quantify this? How are we supposed to set consensus? Well, you don't. But you try and then you argue about it afterwards because it's fun. And the quest for consensus, as impossible as that quest may be, is still a worthwhile one. So let's take a look at this new list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. I spent so much time reading the various excerpts. Uh, I wrote down some key takeaways. I have many thoughts. (laughs) Um, And I, I do think that although this list is imperfect, and although I disagree with many of the selections... I do think it is very informative about how music has changed since 2003. And in many ways, it's informative about how we think about the music before 2003, how we think about the Beatles, how we think about Pink Floyd, how we think about Elvis, how we think about Marvin Gaye. Our thoughts have changed. Hindsight is 2020. These thoughts continue to evolve. Public consensus continues to shift because new voices are being added to that conversation. Um, And I really do think that it's fascinating. It's, again, an imperfect bellwether, but the best bellwether I think that we have right now. So 500 albums on the list, 86 come from this century, the year 2000 or later. 154 are new additions that weren't on the 2003 or 2012 versions. That's a lot of new entries. And uh, you see a, a major generic shift. And I don't mean generic as in plain, I mean generic in relation to genre. You see a lot of hip hop here. You see a lot more soul here. You see a lot of pop here. Now look, it's still Rolling Stone magazine. Don't get me wrong. The Beatles are still the most represented group on this list. 9 albums out of 500 belong to the Beatles. 
at least in the headquarters of Rolling Stone magazine, rock and roll is alive and well. We all know that's not true. We all know that rock and roll is dead. We all know that the days of rock as the preeminent music genre are over. Hip hop is here. It is here to stay. And this list doesn't fully admit that, but at least it tacitly accepts that maybe rock is on its way out the door and hip hop is on its way in. Now, what that does is uh, leave room on this list for several hip hop albums. We'll talk about a few of them in a moment. But what it also does is recontextualize some of the albums that were on that list in 2003. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is now the number one album of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. It used to be Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper was number one in 2003. Now it's What's Going On. What does that tell you? It tells you, although the Beatles are perhaps the most influential group of all time and did more to shape popular music than any group ever, their presence in 2020 is not as felt as Marvin Gaye's presence. Now, you may disagree with that. I maybe disagree with that as well. But if you talk to the artists, if you talk to the producers, if you talk to the writers that voted on this list, what they're telling you is that what's going on means more to them. What's going on has more of a cultural impact. What's going on is more relevant in 2020 than Sgt. Pepper, than Revolver, than Rubber Soul. Again, I don't necessarily agree with that, But that's what those making the music feel. And that's worth noting. Now, what's going on was number six in 2003. Only moved up five spots. It has always been considered a great album. The consensus on that has not changed. But the order here does matter, and I do think it's worth noting. Is there a social justice component to this? Were people voting based on the moment that we currently live? Was this a political statement? Was this an act of wokeness? I will let you decide. Kind of feels that way to me, but I'm not going to quibble with what's going on. I think that's a brilliant record. It is certainly one of my favorite records. I've listened to it a bunch. And uh, Marvin Gaye, listen, I'm never going to criticize the God among men that is Marvin Gaye. So fine. Number one on the list. Let's take a look at the top 10 then and now and see if we notice anything. Um, because <laughs> there is a, there, there is a significant change here. Again, the old top 10 in 2003, number one, Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles. Number two, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Number three, Revolver by the Beatles. Number four, Highway 61 Revisited by Bob Dylan. Number five, Rubber Soul by the Beatles. Number six, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. Number seven, Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Number eight, London Calling by The Clash. Number nine, Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan. Number 10, The White Album by the Beatles. Yep, that's right. One, two, three, four albums in the top 10 by the same artist contrast that with 2020's list number one what's going on by marvin Gaye. number two remains pet sounds by the beach boys that's interesting number three blue by joni mitchell leapfrogs leapfrogs from 2003 to now it was number 30 on the 2003 list now number three number four songs of the key of life by stevie wonder should have been there in the first place number five abbey road by the beatles number six Nirvana's Nevermind, number seven, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, number eight, Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution, number nine, Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, number 10, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. So we go from four albums in the top 10 by the Beatles to just one album in the top 10 by the Beatles, and that one album is not any of the four albums that were there in 2003. Well, that's certainly interesting. It's hella interesting. In fact, only two of the top 10 remain from 2003. Pet Sounds and What's Going On. Now, personally, what this signifies to me is that Pet Sounds is the best album of all time. You know, (laughs) that's sort of what that means to me. I think you should split the difference and give it to Pet Sounds. Because that seems to be the only album where critical consensus has not changed in two decades. Like we understand today as well as we did in 2003. Without Pet Sounds, without Brian Wilson, we do not have recorded music as we now know it. What he did with the studio, what he did with the concept of a record 
that impact has been felt for decades and decades and decades has not changed since 1966. So yeah, I mean, maybe that should be number one. The Joni Mitchell thing blows my mind. Although I love me some Joni Mitchell, that is way too high. Uh, Songs in the Key of Life. Okay, I get it. Obviously, all of the Nirvana heads have grown up and now they have a vote in these things. And uh, Nirvana moved up a couple spots. Again, Fleetwood Mac, I think always should have been there. Purple Rain, maybe. Um, But here's what I see in this top 10. More soul, more diversity, more people of color, but also more poptimism. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I, I don't, again, mean to play the hipster. But like, this is just a very populist list. Abbey Road is not the best Beatles album. Let's be very clear about that. Okay? <laughs> Abbey Road may be the most popular Beatles album. It may be the most streamed Beatles album on Spotify. It is not the best Beatles album. It is not better than Sgt. Pepper. It is not better than Revolver. It is not better than the White Album. You can make an argument that is better than Rubber Soul, but I would argue that it's not. It is number five at best for me. And to put that in the top 10, for that to be the only representative of the Beatles, I just think speaks to how these voters think about the Beatles. Which is to say, they don't think about the Beatles as innovators. They think about the Beatles as guys with good songs. Which is not what they were. But I guess that's now how they're thought of. And that's how the history books will write them. And that just rubs me the wrong way. I'm sorry. I don't mean to suggest that four Beatles albums should be in the top 10. I don't mean to suggest that three Bob Dylan albums should be in the top 10. I understand we want to have a more diverse top 10 list and a more interesting top 10 list. And to put, you know, the totality of music history on the backs of four dudes from Liverpool is not fair. Of course, it's not fair. But at least if you're going to put a Beatles album in the top 10, make it the right Beatles album. It's just a more populist list. It's just a list of albums with good, recognizable songs on them. You know, this is uh, something that I've talked about in the past. The idea between album as a collection of songs and album as a singular musical statement. These are, there's sort of two distinct ways, two schools of thought when it comes to the musical album. Either you think an album should just have a ton of good songs on it. Michael Jackson's Thriller has Beat It, Billy Jean, PYT, Human Nature, just a collection of great songs. Or you believe that an album should say something, that it should stand alone, that you should be able to start it at track one and finish it at track 13, and the whole thing works together as a cohesive piece of art. That's something like Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. That's something like Revolver. That's something like Sgt. Pepper. That's something like To Pimp a Butterfly. It's something like Radiohead's OK Computer. There are two schools of thought. And ultimately, I think the second school of thought won out because what's going on is certainly a cohesive musical statement. That record is not just a collection of great Marvin Gaye songs. You can listen to that thing front to back and be blown away by every track. But Abbey Road definitely is. You know what I mean? Like Abbey Road has the uh, the um, the the medley on the the B side. It has like that five or six song medley, and you have to listen to those top to bottom. But I mean, something come together. Here comes the sun. Those are just Beatles songs that people know, and I just can't help but think some of these voters put Abbey Road towards the top because it had the most Beatles songs on it that people liked. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors is the perfect example of this. Although Rumors, personally, is in my top five all time. Dreams, Go Your Own Way, Songbird, The Chain, Don't Stop. Those are just all the Fleetwood Mac songs. (laughs) That's the thing about Fleetwood Mac. They are thought of as one of the great American bands of all time, but all of their hits were on one record. And that makes the record great. And in many ways, like I think of it as the greatest, greatest hits record. You know, Purple Rain, not so much. Purple Rain works as obviously a music video, as we saw in Purple Rain, the film. All of those songs sort of tell a complete story. They all feel of a piece. 
Um, but you know, I, I just think like that's the dichotomy here. Ultimately, the concept album, if you want to call it that, won out over the greatest hits album. But you still see a lot more of those greatest hits albums here on the top ten. And I don't mean literally greatest hits albums. I just mean albums. I'm trying to think of a better phrase for this. Albums that had a lot of good songs on them. Does this distinction make any sense to you? I, I It makes sense in my own head. Maybe I'm not communicating it right. Because it's a very subtle difference. I mean, it should seem obvious. Of course, like a good album just has a lot of good songs on it. But no, there's something more to it. Right. The idea of the album, the the, uh, the the sort of the structure of a musical album is a fairly new idea um, that the Beatles helped form, that Bob Dylan helped form, that the Beach Boys helped form, that Marvin Gaye helped form, that Stevie Wonder helped form. And, you know, to think of just an album as a collection of songs is a very sort of um, Spotify way of thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? It's It's just a very modern idea that songs are available to listen to on their own, that you can create a playlist that incorporates several albums together, and the idea of cohesion is sort of going away. I don't know. That That's just a thought for my crazy head. The other thing is, there's just a ton of recency bias here, and that's just the way it goes, especially if you're going to allow a lot of young people and a lot of viable artists to vote in this election. Like... You're just going to get a ton of recency bias. I've seen people complain about that online. It's the main criticism I've seen. Not that the reaction to this list has been negative overall. I think in general, it's been fairly positive, but there is some recency bias and I understand why you see, you know, Drake take care at number 95 on the list. And he's like sandwiched in between the Stooges and REM. And you think to yourself, what the hell Rolling Stone? I get it. There's a ton of recency bias. Fine Line by Harry Styles does not belong on this fucking list. It's at number 491. Come on. Come on. Two Beatles albums lost their spot in the top 500 so Harry Styles could sneak in. Come on now. Billie Eilish is at 397. Norman fucking Rockwell by Lana Del Rey is at 321. Um, again, Drake has two albums here. Take care is at number 95. If you're reading this, it's too late at number 367. Taylor Swift's on here twice. 1989 is 398. Red is number 99. Quibble with that one a little bit. Not too fond of that. We all know 1989 is the best Taylor Swift album. We know it's not red. And the idea that red makes the top 100 and 1989 is on the outside looking in. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, Adele gets on there, number one six or number one thirty-seven with twenty-one, and you know, Lemonade is at thirty-three. And like, of course, Lemonade is not the thirty-third best album of all time. Come on now. <laughs> like Led Zeppelin doesn't get on there until fifty-eight. Led Zeppelin has like three or four records better than Beyonce's, and that's fine. Like recency bias is just a part of this and that album came out in 2016 and it was big in the moment and it got snubbed at the Grammys and like that is considered sort of a, you know, a modern masterpiece of pop and soul. I wouldn't even argue it's the best Beyonce record. I think like Sasha fierce is better than, than lemonade. Even the self-titled album in 2013, I might put ahead of lemonade, but okay. It's fine. Like, if you can just go into this accepting, there is going to be some recency bias. There are old school music nerds that are going to take umbrage with some of these new school selections. If you go in just expecting that, you will not be too disappointed. Because in general, and I take the Drake albums aside, this is good pop music. This is good modern music. This is good hip-hop music represented. To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar very well may be a top 20 album of all time. It's number 19 on this list, sandwiched in between Radiohead's Kid A at number 20 and Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited at 18. <laughs> oh, this list is so silly. And then uh, there's the Kanye of it all. The Kanye of it all. Again, let's go through the most represented artists on the 2020 list. The Beatles are number one. 
nine albums. Bob Dylan, number two, eight albums. Number three, with six albums, a three-way tie. Neil Young, The Rolling Stones, and Kanye fucking West. (laughs) Easy taught me. (laughs) Yeezy taught you well, Rolling Stone. My beautiful dark twisted fantasy clocks in at number 17. It is the highest ranked album of the 21st century. No quibbles from me there. In total, six albums. They include The College Dropout, Late Registration, Graduation, 808s and Heartbreak, and Yeezus. All six of those records in the Rolling Stone Top 500. (laughs) Kanye's still king. How funny is that? Man, even this week, the guy's making news. Everyone hates Kanye. He's pissing on Grammys. He's tweeting out record deals. He's still running for president somehow. As much as the public consensus has turned on Kanye the man, the consensus remains strong on Kanye the artist. Six albums in the top 500. Uh, Look, Led Zeppelin again is at five. Bruce Springsteen's at five. Is he overrepresented? Maybe. I'll let the internet decide. Me personally, yeah, I'd put all of those albums there. Made me very happy. Made made me incredibly happy that really the takeaway here is that Kanye has invaded Rolling Stone's list. And he is here to stay. Kind of was funny that they gave Lauren Hill that, um, that top 10 spot. They, that was like the hip hop album that uh, they wanted to recognize. I mean, I don't know. Isn't Lauren Hill kind of better with the Fuji's? I don't know. I think she just sort of did her best work as part of a group. Um, I'm not the biggest Lauren Hill fan, although I appreciate her work uh, quite a bit. I don't know. Kind of felt funny. Like that was the hip hop album. Like, why not Jay-Z? Why isn't the blueprint higher on the list? I think the blueprint was 50. You know, let's move Jay-Z up. Let's move even Kanye higher. I think I would safely put my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy number one all time in the hip hop genre. Um, But yeah, hip hop's here and it's here to stay. And that may upset some vinyl heads out there, some rock enthusiasts, some readers of Rolling Stone magazine from 1987. But it was long overdue. And it's a welcome change. I think in general, it's a welcome change. Recency bias aside. Think about it this way. 2003, Equemini by Outkast, number 500 out of 500. Just barely made the list back in 2003. Now it's number 49. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Uh, Just a couple other little things. I I wrote it down here. Um, Yeah, the Joni Mitchell thing I, I already talked about. There are just some genres that are going to go unrepresented entirely. And that is just the essence of music. Any other genre of art or any other medium, I should say movies, television, whatever, like you can pretty much include documentaries, horror, sci-fi drama, comedy, like you can more or less weight them against one another music. It's just too vast. There's just too much available and you just can't possibly assemble a body Look at the Grammys. You just can't possibly assemble a body that's going to give you equal representation of rap and rock and country. And like, there's just no country albums on this list. There are very few jazz albums on this list. Miles Davis was well represented. The rest, not so much. And that's going to anger some people. I saw a tweet that was like, are we really saying that (laughs) Drake's Take Care is better than most jazz albums that have ever come out? And I think there is a good argument to make that you should just ban certain genres entirely. Like you should just say, there's not going to be any country here. We're Rolling Stone magazine. We don't really cover country. We're not going to include a lot of country voters. And that's okay. We're not going to include jazz. We're going to consider jazz sort of a, an older art form, a classical art form. Um, we're, we're just going to sort of focus on modern popular music. And yeah, I just think when you try to thread that needle you end up looking kind of silly. There's just certain genres that aren't here at all. Um, also, can we like 
I, I know I just talked about the greatest hits albums. Why are we allowing greatest hits albums? What's up with that? Like, I understand the argument that they made that a lot of these artists released music before the album was really a thing. So like Elvis compilations are really the only Elvis albums that we can judge as, a, as, as its own product. Same thing with like Little Richard or Fats Domino or whatever. And I understand that. But then I just look at ABBA, the definitive collection at number 303. And I'm like, okay, whoever voted for that thing, their mother owned that record and played it on a loop. And they, you know, in, in an act of Stockholm syndrome, decided to cast a vote for it. ABBA, the definitive collection does not belong on the top 500 albums of all time. Stop with the greatest hits. Those should be banned entirely. You know, we have to set more rigid guidelines for this. There needs to be more rules in place because the idea of the musical album is so wide ranging. Like you have to set some boundaries or else you get stuck with ridiculous picks like that. Uh, Let's see. What else did I want to hit on here? Highest rated um, Bruce Springsteen album is Born to Run. And number 21, I get it. It's his debut. That's not the best Bruce Springsteen album. It's like my fourth favorite Springsteen album. Like Nebraska is at number 150 on this list. It's an atrocity. That's in my top 10 all time. And it's not even close. Let's uh, let's enough with with this heresy. Okay. Nebraska is the best Bruce Bruce Springsteen album of all time. They should be teaching that in elementary school. Same with Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin four is number 58. That's the record with Black Dog on it. It's with Stairway to Heaven. Again, I don't want to keep coming back to this populist well, but this is a perfect example. It's the album with the most recognizable Zeppelin songs. It's not the best Zeppelin album. I would put the first Zeppelin album number one, and I think in 2003, they put the first Zeppelin album number one. It's not number four. Just too much poptimism here for my liking. Too much optimism. How about Pink Floyd? This is another thing I wanted to note. Dark Side of the Moon is number 55 on this list, which is nothing to sneeze at. It's, you know, still in the top 100. It's behind James Brown's Star Time. It's behind Jimi Hendrix's 50, uh, um, uh, Electric Ladyland at 53. It's behind uh, David Bowie's Station to Station. It's behind uh, Blueprints, behind Outcast Equemini. Nothing to sneeze at, but there was a time where every dude in a dorm room had the poster for Dark Side of the Moon up and argued that that was the greatest record of all time. And it was the same argument I made earlier. It's the concept album. You can play it forwards and backwards and there are hidden messages in it. And it's a singular statement, man. But time has not been kind to Pink Floyd. That's my takeaway. Even in my lifetime, like as long as I can remember being conscious of popular music and being conscious of rock and being conscious of, of classic albums, Dark Side of the Moon was the name that you always throw out when you're debating the best albums of all time. Now it's 55, and I'll tell you what, it just hasn't aged the way that some of these other albums have. You know, the fact that Joni Mitchell makes the top 10 and Pink Floyd's at 55 it's just not an artist. It's not a record that means that much to people anymore. And I think at one point we thought of it as, um, you know, a, a real cultural icon, a real stalwart of, of rock music. And now it's just sort of a time capsule piece, which is okay. I like that album just fine, but I agree. I wouldn't put it that high on the list. Uh, is that it? I think that's all. I think I've waxed poetic enough. Here's my point. I like the list. I think these changes were well overdue. I like the fact that many genres that I listen to are all represented here. I think there's too much recency bias, but I also accept that recency bias is just the name of the game. I'm happy with it. And Kanye has six spots. So how can I possibly complain? All right. uh, Is that going to do it? I do want to say rest in peace to Michael Chapman, the great cinematographer behind many of Martin Scorsese's best films. He shot Raging Bull. He shot The Last Waltz. He shot Taxi Driver. And he also shot other Hollywood classics like The Fugitive. Michael Chapman, an incredibly important force behind the camera 
and uh, is a major part of many of the movies that we now accept as classics. Uh, a true innovator of the form. And, uh, you know, do yourselves a favor, watch Raging Bull, and think to yourself, why don't movies look this good anymore? How is it possible that that movie came out in 1980 and 40 years later, our movies look cheaper than they did then? Technology should have moved forward. We should have progressed. Cinematography should be pushing the boundaries of the form. And Raging Bulls just still looks better than anything else. Taxi Driver still looks better than anything else. It's really shameful. It's really shameful that we don't have more Michael Chapman's working today. Um, But rest in peace. The man will be missed. Um, But his work, of course, will live on forever. Uh, That's going to do it. That is going to do it for this edition of Cultured. I hope you do come back next week. Uh, (laughs) I hope that my snobbery was not too insufferable for you over the past hour. Um, We'll see. We'll see what comes up next week. The world of culture always changing. But I love lists. I love award shows. And sometimes you just have to indulge me. It's my podcast. Uh, next week, I, I'm, I'm looking to make some changes to the pod. I don't want to promise anything, but I, I'm thinking about debuting a new segment next week. I've been toying around with it for a while. I think I'm ready to do it. Um, and so cultured may look a little different next week and uh, hopefully for the better. But more on that later. I love you. Go to the website, too many thoughts, media.com or tmt.media for short. Join our discord, get in on the conversation. If you have any thoughts on the Rolling Stone top 500 list, I am dying to hear them. Let me know on the discord. We'll debate about it. We'll argue about if life of Pablo should have been in the top 500. (laughs) We'll argue about the best Taylor Swift album. We'll argue about if Coldplay should have earned a spot. Rush of blood to the head is in the top 500. Can't wait. It's always a blast talking with you all. So go to the website, hit the little sidebar um, or the, the link in the sidebar that says join our discord and get in on the action. You guys are the best. I love you so goddamn much. And I hope you come back next week because you know what happens then? Well, you and I, we get cultured, of course. I'll see you.